The old saying goes, he came like he came to do what he did. He did what he did that we might be who we are. He, Jesus, came like he came, virgin born, to do what he did, die on the cross. He did what he did, die on the cross so that we might be who we are through his resurrection, children of God. And that, my friends, is why we celebrate Advent, to celebrate his coming. And the appropriate response to to Advent is to praise God. Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a harp and a lyre. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 14 says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the waters and established it upon the seas. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? The one who has not lifted up his heart to idols. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our response today will be to praise you. And for some of us, that is a a sacrifice of praise because praising, verbally expressing our gratitude and thanksgiving, Verbally expressing how good you are and who you are does not come easy. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to challenge the culture of our church to allow us to express to you how amazing you are and how good you are, not just to us, but in and of yourself, that you don't just do good things, but you are the definition of goodness. You are the definition of everything that is right and holy and pure and good. You are a heavenly father who loves your children. And one of the ways in which we know that you love us is because you have revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ, as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I pray, Father, as we start this Advent season, that our hearts would be revived and refreshed and renewed towards you. I pray that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. I pray that we would experience your grace as a church, Lord, and that you would revive us so that we, Lord, so that we would point to you and give you glory. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Not sure about you, but uh, there's sometimes I can be indecisive. Amen. And sometimes being indecisive is okay, but other times when a big decision is on the line, is on the line, indecisiveness is not a good thing. My wife and I, when we have a date night, uh, we become very indecisive on where to eat. Up until that point, we're sure we make a list, and then when it's time to go out, we can't decide. 
And at the end of the day, that's not a big deal because where we eat when we go out um, doesn't have eternal weight, doesn't have big consequences. Uh, But sometimes being indecisive, uh, sometimes wavering between two opinions can have grave consequences. Many of us have heard of teenagers who were good kids, but who found themselves hanging out with the wrong person at the wrong time and at the wrong place. And even though they knew that they should not have been with that group or that person, their indecisiveness, their bad choice ended up shaping their future. Well, in the same way we see in the book of Galatians that Paul is dealing with the church and he's calling them out for their indecisiveness. He's calling them out for kind of wavering back and forth between two opinions. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is talking to Israel and he asks them a question. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions, either serve God or serve, serve Baal? In a similar way, the apostle Paul is is writing to the church and he's saying, uh, uh, you all are wavering between two opinions. Uh, you, You guys are going back and forth on a critical matter and it's time for you to be decisive and I wanna make sure that you make the right decision because the decision has eternal consequences. And so in Galatians chapter five, verse one, The Apostle Paul sounds like a a general in an army. He sounds like he is calling his troops to, to stand firm, he says. Why? Then, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's he's saying, stand firm. Don't be easily swayed. Stay the course. Be stable. Because at the end of the day, a cosmic war is taking place. And if you don't stand firm, you'll reap the consequences. And so in the book of Galatians, Paul is fighting for this church's freedom. In the book of Galatians, Paul is trying to urge this church to remain faithful to the gospel. He is clearly laying out that there are two paths with religion. The first path is the right path. It's a path that he preached to the churches of Galatia when he went out on his first missionary journey. It's a path path that says that salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. And in essence, this first path says that salvation happens and occurs as a result of God's undeserved and under, un, unmerited favor. The second path is a path of human religion. And just about every religion in the world other than Christianity can be summed up in this way. It's a path that says in order to be made right with God, your works, your good works, will make you right with them. It's the path of of works righteousness. And Paul has been arguing and been throwing his best arguments out all throughout Galatians. In Galatians 1 and 2, he makes a personal appeal to them by sharing his own story and his own experience of, of how grace intercepted his life and saved them. 
In chapters 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul makes a deeply theological and philosophical argument trying to, to capture their minds and show logically why divine grace makes sense. And now in chapter 5 through 6, he wants to show them that, that, that those who are saved by grace are those who are free, and those who are free are those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a radically different life than those who believe that they can achieve their own salvation. And so in today's text, we're going to look at this call to stand firm. In today's text, we're going to look at what it means to live as, as a free Christian and how God empowers us to do so. And we're going to see that, that, that when we stand firm in faith, three things happen. The first is that we, we enjoy the freedom that Christ has earned for us. The second is, is that when we stand firm, we, we reject false teachers and their doctrine. And the third is, is that when we stand firm, we serve one another in love. And the main thing that I want you to get today is this, this invitation to, to stand firm. It, it, it allows you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to expressively love like Jesus. But when we don't stand firm in the gospel of grace, rather than expressively loving people like Jesus, we actually do the opposite. We become become bitter, petty people who are constantly in their flesh and in the midst of drama. And the reason this is important to us today as a church is we get ready to start this new church On the south end, I want to make sure that theologically, uh, we don't have a a, a mushy middle. That theologically, we aren't standing in between two opinions, salvation by grace versus salvation by works of the law. Because if we're going to be a thriving church in Louisville, and if we're going to plant thriving churches in Louisville, it is because we understand that we have been saved not as a result of human works of the law, but that we have been saved by grace alone. It is because we understand that God has been better to us than we deserve. It is because we have received a a love that has, has captured our heart and and spoken to our core in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses it to love other people. And I want to make sure that we stay rooted in that gospel, just as the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that his church did. The first step to, to standing firm is understanding that it's only in standing firm that we will enjoy the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Are you enjoying the freedom that Christ has given you? I hope so, because at the end of the day, the reason Christ came was to give you freedom and to keep you free. Christianity is about freedom, and it's not about a false freedom that promotes autonomy and that says you're free to do whatever you want to do, because that is a false freedom. Because in our own strength, when we do whatever we want to do apart from God, our heart is wicked, we end up addicted enslaved to our sin. But this true freedom is a freedom to be known by God and to know God and to experience life in a way that God intended for us to experience. And to experience his life through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in verse 1, for freedom Christ set us free. 
Christ came so that you might be free and remain free. Jesus said in John 8, 36, who the son sets free is free indeed. And part of the Christian experience, part of the Christian struggle and battle is for us to remain free as there are other ideas and false teachers who will tell us that, that we are not free and that true freedom doesn't come in us experiencing the love of Christ, but it comes in us earning our salvation over and over again. And Paul says, no, you have been made free. You have been made free. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 31, which Pastor Nathan did a great job of explaining last week. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but we of the free woman. Those who are in Christ are from the seed of Abraham. They are the children of Sarah. They have received true freedom. And they remain free. Love, Law, and Order is one of my favorite shows. Still, I hadn't watched a new season in about three years, but if I'm off and I'm just trying to chill and there's a marathon, I'm probably going to watch four episodes in a row, especially if I catch the beginning, doom, doom, doom. I'm like, my wife's like, turn it off before you get sucked in again. I'm like, well, I got to see the end. Who did it, right? It's like the same pattern in every episode and I get caught every time. But a lot of times in the episodes on Law and Order, they'll catch the person very early and then they will have to set the person free because they don't have enough evidence. And so they'll put them in jail, they'll put them away only to release them to catch them again as they build their case. And I was thinking this week, I'm so glad that that's not how God is. The Bible says that when Christ set us free, he set us free for freedom so that we will remain free. And Paul is saying, God, uh, Gentile Christians did not save you from the bondage of the law to then give you a new law when you become a Christian. No, Christ, when he saved you, he saved you so that you would be free from the law. And he's saying, don't submit to the yoke of slavery again. You will not enjoy your Christian freedom if you are putting yourself under the yoke of slavery. Now, what's the yoke of slavery? Verse two, take note, Paul. Uh, take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. And what's happening here? There are troublemakers, uh, some who are not Christians at all, what we call uh, Judaizers, that are basically telling these Jewish Christians uh, that they, they must be circumcised or they are, are cursed. And then there are other Christians who are modifying that a bit and saying, no, uh, salvation is found in Jesus plus circumcision. And the apostle Paul is saying, this is a gospel issue. And he's bringing out his, his guns and he's saying, stand firm. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery. Don't be circumcised. Believing that circumcision will save you. And then he says this, because if you do, Christ will not benefit you at all. Woo. What is he saying? He's saying you can't enjoy the freedom that Christ has earned for you if you believe that circumcision is salvific. Listen, Christianity is not Jesus plus something. If your Christianity is Jesus plus 
anything, then you have nothing. Christianity is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Salvation is not Jesus plus baptism. Baptism is a sign, is a symbol of of what God has done inwardly through us and us identifying with Christ. Baptism does not save. It's the first act of obedience. Salvation is not Jesus plus a certain theological tradition. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he says, if you believe Jesus plus something is what saves you, Christ is of no benefit to you at all. And you cannot enjoy your freedom. But he goes on to explain even more. Verse 3, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to the entire law. Well, you can't enjoy your freedom and be obligated to the entire law. But that's what Paul says. If you submit to circumcision, it's foolish because the, the law is a, is a whole, is indivisibly whole. And so you can't pick and choose one or two items and say, in order to be accepted by God, you have to do these one or two items out of the law. He says, no, either you're under the entire law or you're free from the law. Picking and choosing elements out of the law does not give you freedom. He goes on again in verse four, you who are trying to be justified by the law. What does justified mean? You who are trying to be declared righteous, you who are trying to be right with God by the law, this is huge, are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Listen, he's talking to Christians. He's warning this church. He's warning these people that he helped bring to faith. Like, like, do you see this? He, he considered himself in chapter four as, as their father, as, as a mother, as one who gave birth to them spiritually by preaching the pure gospel. He's like, yo, how can you leave this gospel? How can you leave this message that I preached to you that salvation is by divine grace and turn and believe that it can be accomplished? He says, if you believe that you have fallen away from grace, fallen away from grace, fallen away. That's a different picture than we see in verse one when he tells them to stand firm. Falling away is not stability, it's instability. And you're falling away from God's undeserved favor by saying that salvation is through human effort. Now that, all, that brings us to the point, can a Christian, as we say, lose their salvation, which is a, a more complicated question if you pose it that way. What the Bible teaches us is quite clear. A person who has truly received divine grace, a person who has truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus, a person who was dead in their trespasses and sins and who were made alive together in Christ is one who will persevere to the end. But there are some. That's what John, 1 John, verse 2, 19 says. I think we actually have that. He says, this is what John says, they, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. So those, in one instance, who are falling away from grace, if they fall away from grace, if they continue in this path, it's because they never received divine grace in the first place. And Paul is writing to to many Christians throughout Galatia, and he sees that a problem is arising as as false teachers are are, are beginning to creep in and to to persuade people 
who are indecisive to, to believe that salvation is through works of the law. He says, if you believe that you cannot enjoy the freedom that Christ has given you, in fact, you will be alienated from Christ. And if you're alienated from Christ, what are you alienated from ultimately? He answers that question in verse, the next verse. For we eagerly await through the spirit by faith, the hope of righteousness. When one falls away from grace, when a person believes that salvation is through works, one loses hope for future, for, for righteousness. If you today believe that Jesus plus anything else is what saves you, you have no hope of be, be, being declared righteous by God. His declaration is already and, and not yet. It's a declaration that we one day will ultimately receive as we stand before God. And we are declared not righteous by grace through faith, but it has real implications in how we live every day. Paul is saying you cannot have a hope for this future declaration if, if. You believe in salvation by works. For freedom, Christ set you free. He says, stand firm. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most zealous of all Hebrews, who was one of the best law keepers there was. But in Philippians chapter 3, when he met Jesus, he says, I consider all as lost, all of my former righteousness as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus by faith in the Son of God. He says his mind was radically changed and he understands that circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What matters is faith working through love. He's going to pick up on this idea in a little bit, and we'll jump right in. The second thing we want to understand is, is that when we stand firm in faith, not only do we enjoy the freedom that Christ earned for us, but we reject false teachers and their doctrine. Verse 7 through 12, you are running well who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth. This persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish that you, who were dis those who were disturbing you, might also let themselves be mutilated. Whew. All right, Paul's not holding back. <laughs> He's, he's saying some heavy stuff here. Like I said, like a general talking to his army, he's saying, don't lose ground, stand firm and reject false teachers. Don't play around with them. And as Christians, we must do the same. When someone perverts the gospel, we must stand firm and say, no, what you are believing is in a, a false gospel and therefore you have no hope. You are perverting the gospel. And Paul gives an athletic description here of a person who is in a race and running and they get cut off 
by someone else. And as a result of them being cut off, they're disqualified. See, in the Greek games, just like it is in the Olympics, if you're a runner, you have to stay in your lane. And if you touch another runner and cause them to stumble or to fall or you try to trip them, you are disqualified along with that runner. Paul said, what happened? You guys were running well. You knew the gospel. The Lord was bearing fruit. All of a sudden, somebody stepped in. A false teacher came and they began to persuade you. You became indecisive and you stopped running well. Verse 9 lets us believe that it wasn't a lot of people, but a little. Paul says a little yeast, it messes up the whole dough, all of the dough. In the same way, giving your attention to false teachers can destroy all of you and harm the church. But I love verse 10. I myself am persuaded in the Lord. You will not accept any other view. But whoever is it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. So what is Paul saying here? He says, listen, I'm persuaded that even though some false teachers has crept up in our churches and they're teaching salvation by works, that you will persevere. And why is the Apostle Paul persuaded? Because he spent time with them. He saw how they labored in the gospel and received it. And so he's saying similarly to what he said to the church at Philippi, when he told the church at Philippi, he who begun a good work at you will bring it to completion. But then he goes and he says, but listen, those who are causing trouble among you, there will be a penalty. This isn't something new that the Apostle Paul is teaching. This is, <laughs> this is what Jesus taught, right? Matthew chapter 23, Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for religious leaders who believe that salvation was by works. In fact, Jesus one day was teaching to them. And he says, listen to me, whoever causes one of these little children to stumble, as one of his, his new disciples to stumble, better a millstone be tied upon them, their neck and they thrown into the sea. God ain't playing with false teachers. James chapter three, James said, if any of you desire to be a, a teacher, um, he told him, he said, you gotta make sure that you, you guard your mouth for you will receive, you will be judged with greater strictness. So this is a warning to us as the body of Christ, number one, to, to diligently search and to know the scriptures, to have settled in our heart what the gospel is and how one is saved, to do what the apostle Paul told Timothy to do, to study, to show yourself, approve a worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly cutting the word of truth, to, to make sure that we're spending time with Jesus, communing with Jesus and knowing Jesus so that we will not be cut off by someone who seems to have it together, but who do not know him at all. This also encourages us, especially as the holidays are coming up, to live with some gospel chest. Because many of us will spend time with people who think that they are Christians, who think that they know Jesus, who may speak confidently that they know him, but at the end of the day, they believe in salvation by works. And I pray like the Apostle Paul that the faith will express itself through love through us so that we can look at them 
over that Christmas meal and say, Mom, salvation does not hinge upon how you dress for church. Dad, salvation does not hinge upon what political party you voted for. Friend, salvation is not found by you being a a Moor or Black Hebrew Israelite. Salvation is not found by you keeping the Sabbath on Saturday. Salvation is found in Christ and him alone. Third, when we stand firm in the faith, we we serve one another in love. Not only do we reject false teacher, but we serve one another in love. And and that brings the question. I I, I wrestle with this this week. Can I be honest with you? I, I asked Paul, we were having a conversation, and I said, Paul, how are you gonna tell me that faith needs to express itself in love and you just told said, I wish that they would mutilate themselves. I was a little confused. And so me and Paul, we wrestled back and forth this week. And, and what, I, what I realized is that in verse 12, he says, I wish that those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. And the Greek, that's really strong. It's literally, I wish that the knife had slipped when you were being cir- cir- circumcised. Okay? And so I struggled naturally. And I thought it was interesting that in verse 13, he says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. we serve one another through love. And so what I believe is happening here and throughout the book of Galatians is Paul is not spewing hatred to his audience. Uh, Paul is not saying that I want to harm these people. What Paul is doing is he's using hyperbolic language because what is at stake is eternal life. What is at stake is the future of brothers and sisters that he labored with, that he preached to, that he lived among. And he says, I want to make sure you all get it. And in order for you all to get it, I'm going to use strong imagery so that you can say, whoa, And so that my opponents would be shamed and you could say, well, I don't want my spiritual father wishing that the knife had slipped when I was circumcised. So I better listen. So from verse 13 through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is doing something uh, very unique. Essentially, what he's saying is this. Those who are free are those who have received the gospel of grace. (laughs) And those who have received the gospel of grace are those who are in the well with the Holy Spirit. And those who are in the well with the Holy Spirit are those who are able to expressively love because their faith is in Jesus Christ. Those who are caught on works righteousness are those who are not dwell with the Holy Spirit are those who believe that they're strong enough and good enough to stand before God in their good works. And those people, rather than live a life that is marked by love, will live a life that is marked by bitterness and all kind of immorality. Why? Because we cannot change ourselves. 
because we don't have the power from within. Because we have not, because you have not uh, uh, tasted uh, divine love and divine grace. The only way that one is able to love, like Jesus says, love is if one is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The only way that, that faith is able to express itself in love is if the object of our faith is love himself. So Paul here is going to call the church to love. And then in verses 16 to 26, which we'll look at next week, he's going to show us how we love. It's not in the flesh. It's through the spirit. So what is he saying? He's saying stand firm, enjoy your freedom, reject false teachers and love each other. And we can love each other. Because we're no longer in the flesh, but we're in the spirit. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Now check out what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. He is not calling the church to live under the law by loving. He doesn't doesn't call the church to live under the law by loving. No, he's saying, Christians, you are no longer under the law. But what he is saying is, is that when you place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, true saving faith is met by an outpouring of love. And when you love other people, you fulfill the law. It's not that you keep the law, you fulfill the law because you're no longer under the law. You fulfill the law and all of the law. All of the law can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 38, when a man tried to catch him up and say, which law is most important? He says, all of the law hinges on holy loving God and holy loving your neighbor. That's what James chapter two says, that the royal law is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of scripture points to this love. And if there's division in the church, if there's bitterness in the church, if there are people devouring each other in the church, at the root of it, it is because a person or persons believe in their own righteousness through their own works. Self-righteousness leads to devouring others. Self-righteousness leads to hypercriticality. Self-righteousness leads to me looking down upon other people. When I understand that I have been saved, not because of my own ability, not because of my own works, but I have been saved by grace through faith that God set his affections on me, not because I had it all together, not because I was so intelligent, not because I looked so fly or so good, not because I was going to be this great person in of myself, but God saved me, a wretched man, a sinner, because he set his affections on me apart from me it frees me to love other people because I am amazed that God would love me and bless me with every spiritual blessing despite and in spite of me are you having a hard time loving take the issue back to the root You having a hard time forgiving? Take the issue back to the root. 
Are you having a hard time being patient? I know I have a hard time being patient in those moments. I've got to take the issue back to the root. The root is, is that I'm believing the lie that in and of myself, I am better than another person. And the truth is, is that without grace, such am I. And honestly, with grace, such, as I, such am I. It's only God's unmerited favor that makes me otherwise. Stand firm in the gospel. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Enjoy your freedom by resting in what Christ has done for you. Stop building your own kingdom and your own strength, thinking that you have something to offer to God and other people. What God wants is your faith in his son. And it's faith in his son that transforms you from the inside out. Not white knuckling it. Not by declaring I'm going to be a better person. It's by falling to your knees, being poor in spirit, saying, God, help me. And every Sunday we do that together as a church. We celebrate our freedom by remembering how it was purchased. We take a meal called communion together. The Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. A sojourn, we take this meal week in and week out. And some of us, we kind of daydream doing this meal. But I don't want you to do that because this is extremely important and valuable. This meal reminds us every week that Christ's righteousness is what makes us right with God, not our own. It reminds us every week that God loves us infinitely and perfectly in spite of ourselves because of what Christ did, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he did what we could not do. He fulfilled all of the law and he allows his spirit to indwell us and empower us to radically love when we think we can. So we take this meal reflectively. If you're not a Christian today, I want to encourage you to turn to Christ. Many people in this room were just like you. I was just like you. I believe that I can be right with God by by pleasing him in and of myself. And today is a day I want you to hear me say there's only two choices, salvation by grace or salvation by works. Salvation by works will leave you eternally alienated from God in a place called hell. Salvation by grace gives you the keys to the kingdom of God and eternal life with him. And the scandal of Christianity is that you receive those keys not because of what you have done, but what someone has done for you. And Christ transforms your heart so that you can live expressively in love like him. Here at Sojourner, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice the wine that's marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but we want you to partake in Christ. As communion is going on, we have some people that you can talk to over here in this room about what it means to follow Jesus. If that's intimidating, and and fearful to you, which I can see how it is, it it may mean that you're just not ready to follow him. Because part of following Jesus is picking up your cross, just as he did, 
confessing him as Lord and Savior, coming to an end of yourself, humbling yourself, and saying, I need the Lord. And we have people who can help shepherd you to that. Those of you in the front, come to the front. Those in the back, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. Let's pray.